Well, thanks for being patient with us. Steve, great job. Thanks for bringing us kind of back a little bit this morning. In the time that we have left, what I would like to do is to spend some time in the book of Hebrews. So I want to ask you to start with me this morning by turning your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to read a few verses there together if we could. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering from time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But he, meaning Christ, of course, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he was perfected he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind will I write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of these things, therefore, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, and specifically here he intends the day of judgment drawing near. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we just... We just thank you so much that we can be a part of a fellowship that uh, really goes after everything that we do with all that we have and all that we are. When it is time to laugh, we enjoy laughing. When it is time to work and to study, we enjoy that. And when it is time to worship, Lord, we are committed totally and fully as a fellowship of believers this morning to stand before you as we listen to your Spirit teach us from your Word. And Lord, this morning it is my prayer that again we will come into face-to-face confrontation with your holiness and your character. And Lord, that from that experience we will all know again what it means to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be rebuked in our spirit, and Lord, to be set up again and headed in the right direction to go out to serve you after chapel. Lord, we love you. And Lord, this morning we just... uh, are looking forward to our fellowship together with you from the Word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Some time ago, I read about a California industrialist who addressed a group of executives uh, at a leadership seminar, and his topic specifically was employee motivation, how to get the job done while maintaining enthusiasm and commitment on the part of your employees. He offered a lot of helpful suggestions as I read his um, sort of his synopsis of his seminar. But there was one thing in particular that sort of stuck in my head as, as I was reading that. And that is that he made this comment. 
there are two things that are the most difficult thing to get people to do. Uh, here's a guy who is a self-made millionaire with thousands of people under his charge. And he said there are two things that are more difficult than anything else when it comes to leading people. And he said these are the two things. Number one, to get people to think on the right thing. And number two, to get people to put first things first. Those are the most difficult things in the world to get people to do. People will think, but they choose to, uh, many times to think on the wrong thing. And people do things, but they don't do the first things first. And if you can accomplish those two things as a leader over or any organization, you have really excelled in your task. He was talking about, I believe, a problem that you and I all experience at some time or another, and we could call that problem the problem of a lack of focus. I mean, you and I face that. We think a lot, but we find ourselves over great periods of time sometimes thinking on the wrong things. We do a lot of things, but many times we look back on our day, our week, and our month, and we think, did we really do anything that really mattered? Did I really set out to perform the things that in the eyes of God really have significance? And we lose our focus. We kind of start drifting, and we feel a weariness in our spirit, a weariness in our flesh, in our mind, as we're trying to wrestle to get back to what is really important, to get our mind focusing on the right thing and doing their first things first. I've always admired people who seem to be able to stand above uh, circumstances and to maintain their focus. Uh, John, I think our president, John MacArthur, has an incredible, remarkable ability to do that. Time and time again, I've been in meetings where we have dealt with very difficult, complex, confusing issues and John will sit there in the midst of, of sometimes a lot of emotion, a lot of information that at times can be contradictory, and to cut through all of that and to kind of rise above the circumstances and really keep his mind clear on what the real focus that we should have as a cabinet and that what we should have as a college. He has a remarkable ability to do that. He, de he demonstrated that, I think, during the recent crisis and the earthquake. Uh, John is a person who can step into great confusion and great uh, turmoil and maintain a very clear focus. And I admire him for that. I admire people who can do that. Uh, it is, there's a story that is told of Churchill during the fall of 1940 when the Germans really rained terror upon London. For 57 days in a row, they sent an average of 200 planes per raid, per day, to just bomb London endlessly. And after the war and after Germany was defeated, someone came to Churchill and said, what did you do during those 57 days? And he said, well, I went down during the night in the midst of the chaos and the confusion and the noise and, and the pain and the hardship. I went down to my cellar uh, while the bombing was going on and I took out my little lamp. I took out a little map of Germany and I just began to plot out an invasion of Germany. And night after night, I just kept focused on we are going to have our opportunity to respond to these raids. And it was because of his work in that cellar and his ability to maintain his focus on the right things, even in the midst of chaos, that really allowed England and the Allied forces to respond to Germany's attack. Churchill had a remarkable ability. I, I think that many of you, and certainly most of you, know who Elizabeth Elliot is. We've had her here, had the privilege of having her here on different occasions. I've always been struck about just how she was able to do the same thing. Uh, she had a commitment to get the Word of God into the hands of the Alca Indians in Quito, Ecuador. And despite the fact that her husband was martyred along with four other men, and despite the fact that the translator that was working with her over a great period of time was killed, 
And despite the fact that her manuscripts were stolen at one point, and then on top of all of that, a flood came through the village and destroyed her work of months and months and months, she persisted in keeping her mind focused on what was important, what it is that she was all about, why she existed, what she was after, and was able to bring the Word of God into the hands of the Alka Indians and to see God mightily bring revival and salvation to that community. But it's interesting that a lot of times you and I struggle with the problem of focus not because of bad things or difficult things. Sometimes we get knocked off course because we are distracted by good things, right? I really struggle with that, and sometimes I think I struggle with that more than the other. I get really engaged and engulfed in doing a lot of things that are good, but things that aren't necessarily the best things. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to a friend, and as he was concluding a lot of thoughts that he had about the Christian life, he concluded with this statement. When I have learnt, learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. Oh, that, was a, that was a remarkable statement of a man who really had a deep love for his wife. And there's a movie that is out right now that, that sort of portrays that commitment and that passion that he had for his wife of four years. But yet, no matter how good that was, and no matter how much we can recognize the fact that God intended C.S. Lewis to experience that in marriage, he realized that it was easy to take a good thing, a thing that God designed, and to allow that to knock him off balance and off track and to cloud up his mind when it comes to focus. So sometimes good things do that. Sometimes bad things do that. Sometimes there are things that aren't quite so bad. As I was studying for this message and went through numerous commentaries to try to figure out what is the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews, I've concluded that we're really in the modern vernacular we could say this about that book, that the writer of the book of Hebrews is addressing a group of people that he loves passionately, he knows intimately, and he is addressing them on the subject of maintaining your focus. The writer of Hebrews is actually writing to these people, telling them the two things that you and I just heard from this industrialist, and that is that in the midst of confusion and weariness and spiritual dryness, we need to call ourselves back to thinking on the right things and doing the first things first. And these believers were really under the pressure. If you read through the book of Hebrews or any introductory material, we read that they were under incredible persecution. There were many people that were still of the Jewish faith that were persecuting the Christians who had been saved from Judaism and had entered into Christianity. And they did not like that. And there was intense persecution from them because of that. There was persecution that was coming from Rome and from the Gentiles. This is just prior, most people believe, to the Neronian persecution of, uh, and the fall of Jerusalem in, 19, and in AD 70. There was intense persecution. They were really feeling drained from all the pressure that was coming upon them from outside the church. It was like there was no end to it. Every single day we get up and we face the pressure from the outside world tugging on us and attacking us and chipping away at us. And it is, it is so wearisome. The other thing that these believers faced was the drudgery of daily obedience. And three times in this book, the writer calls them back to stand fast. Stop being weary. Don't, don't get 
don't drift away from just a daily, day in, day out, simple obedience of faith in Jesus Christ. And it was hard for that for them to do that. It was hard for them to get up every day and, and because the persecution had taken away so much of their emotion, so much of their human zeal and, and, and exuberance. And that was, that was dying away. Much of what they experienced emotionally as they entered into Christianity was now gone. And now they were just facing the daily grind of being obedient to God Monday as Monday leads into Tuesday and Tuesday into Wednesday. And, and where's the emotional high? They wanted to know. The third thing that they were facing was the lure of carnal pleasure. And all through the book of Hebrews you find allusions to that as they were people like we are with passions like our passions and one of the points that is made by the author is so was Jesus Christ and His humanness as we all face the struggle of dealing with those things that, again, lure us away from God, lure us off track from the things that are really important to involve ourselves in earthly carnal pleasures. And then there was another thing that really, really kind of was the icing on the cake. There was persecution. There was weariness of daily obedience. There was the lure of carnal pleasure. But there was something else that was happening among these believers that really made this sort of even more intense than, than otherwise would have been so. And that is that some of their own people and even some of their own leaders had given up the fight and had defected. And had said, you know what? I'm tired. I'm beaten up. It just, just isn't worth it. And they gave up the faith and walked away from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And that was hard on these people. Because some of those that, that did that were people that they had looked up to as their model. And, it's, and you can imagine as, as they observed that, that they must have had the feeling that what's the point? What's the use? The emotion is gone. The persecution is undying. The temptation of the flesh is incessant. And those that we held up as people that could kind of rise above that are clocking out on us. What's the point? Man, there's a lot of parallel there to what we're facing today, isn't there? As we face a, sort of almost exactly a parallel situation to those four dynamics. And it is to those people that the writer comes and he says, look, you must not waver. You must not grow weary. You must not allow yourself to get distracted from thinking on the right things and doing the first things first. I know that you're tired. And he tells them, and I am praying for you daily. And he tells them in Hebrews chapter 13, and I intend to revisit you soon. But in the meantime, don't give up. Don't give up your focus. And as you go through the book of Hebrews, it's interesting as they face all these four things. And, and I just want you to write these down. But we won't turn to them just because of time. But he says in chapter 5, as you listen to me, don't, don't turn, but listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Concerning him we have much to say, but it is hard to explain this because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers of others, you have need again for someone to teach you. Under all the things that, and all the pressures that they were under, one of the things that this author, this person who was deeply in love and concerned about them, said to them is that there is a spiritual sluggishness that I'm observing among you. The edge that I saw at one time, the tenacity, the focus, the sharpness of purpose is fading away. And the picture is getting kind of fuzzy. 
And he addresses their spiritual sluggishness. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, said, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, the things which accompany salvation. We are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love. He, he said, you know, you, there was a time when your labor in the Lord and your love for others was there. It was evident. People felt the impact of it. Which you have shown towards his name and ministering and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. What he is addressing there is not just a sluggishness spiritually, but there was a there was a slowness or a stagnation that was going on. It's like, wait a second, we're in chapter 10 of your life, and if we were able to go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, we would see a daily commitment to progress spiritually, to grow in your relationship with God, to engage yourself in fruitful ministry with those around you. But that's slowing down. There's a stagnation that I'm seeing. And he said, you know, formerly it was there. But it is waning. And he's calling them back to get up, brush yourself off, and set out to do the things that you started to do from the very beginning in your walk with God. And then there's a, there's a last thing that he observes in them that's very serious. In fact, probably essentially at the root of the first two. And he alludes to it in chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the thing, good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. There was a growing belief among these people that religion and piety and genuine worship of God was just a matter of outward ritual. Going through the hoops the right hoops at the right time with the right people with the right appearance. And they were facing that tendency. And the author is confronting them on that and saying, now wait a second, there is a, there is a staleness to your walk with God. There's a dryness that is there. Formerly there was life and there was vibrancy and there was a, there was a relationship that was so important to you, that was so personal to you. But now your walk with God has just become a matter of rote, almost mindless ritual. What a description, huh? What a, what a frightful description. That this author is addressing a group of people that God set aside for His kingdom to transform the world, to be an agent of change, to tell the world about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And they're just basically worthless. Now, as I went through that description, I find myself there in a lot of points at a lot of times. I know what it's like to feel stale and to feel almost heartless and mindless as I kind of go through the motions. I felt that in this room at this time of the day, at this time of the week, as I've walked in the chapel and done what I was supposed to do. And and not that that is wrong, and, and when your heart is not there, sometimes being obedient is the right thing to do, but that I have just come in and walked out and thought, man, Lord, I really wanted to, to have a visitation from you today. I needed to be encouraged in my spirit. I needed to be re renewed in my soul and kind of patched back together, and boy, it just didn't happen. My heart just wasn't there. I felt the staleness. I have felt stagnation as I've slowed down in ministry at times and struggled about getting back up. It just seems like at times there's so much to do you don't even start. Have you ever been there? It's like I've got 
so much homework to do, why even do anything? It's like, uh, it's like you just become stagnant. You just become overwhelmed. I've been to the point of sluggishness where it seems like nothing moves me. A speaker will come up in chapel, has this ever happened to you? And I walk out of chapel and someone walks up to me and says, and I said, uh, they said, Dave, thanks for a great chapel. Man, the person you brought in really challenged my heart. God really spoke to me. And it's, and it's sort of like a shock to me. It's like, God spoke to you through that? And, and, I, and I'm walking out thinking, man, you know, I, I was kind of rating the speaker. I was sort of going through my 1 to 10 scale on his ability to, to articulate or to gesture or, or his ability to open the Bible. I mean, I was so technical and so academic and so stale and so just ritualistic in my mindset that I had failed to let God touch my heart. And it's a rebuke sometimes to have one of you come up to me and say, man, God really spoke to me in that chapel. Have you ever had that happen to you? I've, I've been there. And we aren't told necessarily who this author is that's writing all this, but he obviously has a deep knowledge, an intimate knowledge, and a deep passion for these people to move forward in their faith with God. Thirteen times in the book of Hebrews, he repeats, let us, let us, let us, let us. He challenges them, summons them, exhorts them to move forward in the faith. Because weariness is a deadly spiritual cancer. If you are drifting away from a focus on the right thing, and if you've allowed yourself to get so cluttered that the first things no longer become first, it is just as spiritually deadly as any sexual, immoral, pornographic, illicit thing that you could possibly allow into your life. Because it has the same impact. It completely nullifies your usefulness as an agent in the kingdom of God. And it's really hard to respond to that because it isn't, it isn't one of the seven vices. It's not lying. It's not cheating. It's not lust. It's not murder. It's just, I'm weary. And I'm sort of drifting. I mean, how do you, how do you invoke Matthew 18 on that? I want to confront you. This is the first step of Matthew 18. Because you're weary. I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to do, isn't it? In fact, most of the time we feel reticent to do it because it's like, oh, they're hurting already. Let's not exhort them. But isn't it interesting that this author who loves them so deeply is with such passion and care, but yet comes alongside them and says, now wait a second, wait a second, something very serious is going on here. The stakes are very high. God king, God's kingdom is at stake. This is a matter of life and death. You need to get your mind back on the right thing. You need to do the first things first. When I, when I was reading John's commentary on this passage, uh, MacArthur, he said this, the overall theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority or the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is better than anything that was before. He is better than the Old Testament, any Old Testament person. He's better than any Old Testament institution. He's better than any Old Testament ritual. He is better than anything else. The general outline of the book of Hebrews shows the basic pattern of presenting the superiority of Jesus Christ. And what this author does so masterfully and consistently almost in a kaleidoscope manner throughout the book of Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of chapter 13 as he presents to them over and over and over again that the thing that you ought to be thinking on 
is Jesus Christ. The antidote to weariness, the antidote to spiritual lethargy and sluggishness and staleness is to focus your mind on the right thing. And this author suggests over and over again that the person that we need to be called back to, to contemplate upon, to meditate upon, is the person of Jesus Christ. And he gives us all sorts of reasons throughout the book of why we should do that. But there is one prevailing reason why in the midst of weariness we should focus our minds on Jesus Christ. And this is the reason that he gives us. Focus your mind on Jesus Christ because He is God's answer to sin in our lives. Jesus is the answer to sin. That's why we should focus on it. Because when you and I are facing all the things that I just described and that the author writes on, the real issue, the bottom issue, it's not a personality thing. It's not a time management thing. It's not a, a scheduling thing. I mean, ultimately, when we become unuseful in the hands of God, when we pull away from ministry, when we're untouched by what happens in chapel, ultimately, it's a personal thing, and this author calls it a sin thing. And the real answer to that is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is God's remedy to sin. And throughout the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Christ cleansed sin. In chapter 9, he said, He redeemed us from sin. Again, in chapter 9, he says, He bore our sin. He nullified sin. He was our substitute for sin. And in fact, as I read in chapter 10, and it's repeated before in chapter 8, verse 12, because of Christ, God has totally and absolutely forgotten our sin. I will remember their sin no more. Jesus Christ is presented in the book of Hebrews as both the sacrifice for sin and the priest who is bringing the offering of sin before a holy God. Now go back to your, open your again to your Bibles if you're not there to chapter 10, verse, verse 11. Look what he says. He says, Jesus Christ is the solution to your personal struggle against sin. And he contrasts Christ with all other efforts to get back on track. All other thoughts about how to stand back up and move forward in your relationship with God. He said, nothing else is the answer. There is nowhere else to turn. Don't turn to ritual. Don't turn to spiritual disciplines and say, well, the answer is to get back up on a, a three-verse-a-day Bible memory program. The answer to your spiritual problems is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because it is in relationship with Him that God has addressed our sin. Verse 11, he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering from time to time the same sacrifices which can never, never take away sin. He says in this passage that there are efforts that are fruitless and pointless to get us back on track. Don't allow, don't allow yourself to get drawn into those. The priest stood. His work was never done. He ministered daily. Every time there was a new sin, there needed to be a new sacrifice. The sacrifices were innumerable because the sins were innumerable. And, and by the way, all of this stuff, all this ritual stuff, didn't address sin anyway. And then he goes on in verses 12 and 13, and listen to what he says. You know, it is your tendency, whether you're from a Jewish background or not, it is always our tendency in the church to turn to 
technique as a remedy to our personal struggle with sin. There must be something I can do. There must be an organization that I can join. There must be a program that I can sign up for. There must be a class. There must be a service. There must be something that will that will put me in the right spot, a, an outline I can follow that will address the wickedness of my soul. And, and this author says, you know, quit turning to those things. And after he kind of lays all that stuff flat and crushes it down, in verse 12 he says, but he... The strongest use of an adversative as a contrastive term in the New Testament. But He, in contrast to anything else that you can turn to with your desire to get up from your spiritual weariness, but Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool. Sin is the problem. And Jesus is the answer. That's the author's simple message. And then he goes on from verses 14 through 18 as we move to really the text that I think is primary here and the central thought of this chapter. In verses 14 through 18, what he does is he says, not only is Jesus Christ the answer to your sin, but because He has offered once a sacrifice for sin, and because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life to join you with Jesus Christ, you are now a new person. And he brings them back to that thought. And I thought, well, that's, that was kind of an odd thing to happen. I didn't expect that necessarily in this chapter. But you know, when you really think about it, it's the same strategy that Paul took in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 6. Because when Paul was addressing... You know, it's hopeless. I have asked forgiveness for this sin so many different times, and just to re-enter into it the next day, I am so, I'm almost embarrassed to even go to God. What's the point? I'm defeated. And the author says, remember who Jesus Christ is and who you are in Him. You are a new person. God has transformed your dead, stony heart and brought life to it. And he describes that in verses 14 through 18 as he, as he quotes the passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. God has made us new people. And the struggle that you and I have against sin in this New Testament dispensation is totally different than the experience that any believer had prior to this age because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the new ministry of union in Him. Christ did a work as the priest and as the sacrifice and because God has joined us to Him, we are new people. And then after He says, I believe, think on the right thing. Think on Jesus Christ and who you are in Him. In essence, realize that Jesus Christ is the answer to every difficulty. He is the solution to every problem. He is comfort to every perplexing circumstance and He is the antidote to all our weariness. Not in some magical take-a-pill sense. Not that when you got on your knees and prayed that the aftershocks would go away, that they went away. And when you and I face 
the, the tension that comes from our desires and our heart and our experience in life not matching. I mean, we in our flesh so often want God to change the circumstance, don't we? I mean, that's our answer. Contentment is an issue of right circumstance. And I think with, with wisdom and tenderness and compassion, this author, like Paul, has in other places said, you know what? What really needs to change is you. Your mind is on the wrong thing. Your mind has drifted away from Jesus Christ, His person and work. It has drifted away from the fact of who you are in Him. And you've lost hope. You've lost your ability to persevere and to be consistent and faithful day in and day out. And then in verse 19, verses 19 through 25, he says, not only do you need to think on the right thing, but you need to do the first things first. That is the solution to your weariness. And in the first three verses, verse 19, 20, and 21, he again, it's almost like the author said, now, now, before I go on to what you should do, let me go back one more time in a kind of a compact way and remind you that I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm getting ready to say to be some sort of cold externalism and he returns to the heart one more time in those three verses. And he says, look, since therefore, brethren, we have two things. One, we have confidence in verse 21, and we have a great priest. He reminds them one more time in a summary fashion, really summarizing what he has said from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18. And that is think on the right thing. Think on Jesus Christ who He is, and who you are in Him. And when you really put your mind on that, and when you really spend time in the presence of Christ, realizing what God has affected on our behalf through Him, realizing that the one thing that kept us distant from God and isolated from a holy, loving God is sin, and that Jesus Christ in His person, in His flesh, in His death, broke through the veil, the imagery of the of the wall that isolated us from where we are and where God is, Jesus Christ brought us into the presence of God, which is where you and I have to be if we're to go on in our lives. And he, and he brings them back one last time to say you have confidence. It's a very unusual word that he uses there. It's not found hardly more than just a couple of three times in the entire Bible. And what he's saying is, you don't have confidence in who you are. But you can believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is and has done what God says He has done from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 8. Don't doubt it. You're a new person. And Christ has gained you access to the Holy God. He has dealt with your sin. And you've got to resolve that. And you've got to resolve it on Monday. And then you've got to come back on Tuesday and resolve it again. We have confidence because we have a high priest. And then he says in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he then says, now let's do, gang, the first things first. And he gives us three things that we're to do. If we are to respond to stagnation and staleness and weariness and a lack of focus spiritually, there are three things that we've got to do after we get our minds set on the right person. We need to get up and move in the right direction. And here are the three things that he tells us to do. Number one, draw near. Number two, hold fast. Number three, consider one another. 
Those are the three things that He calls us to do. Draw near, hold fast, and consider one another. It's interesting that when you're when you're weary spiritually and sort of dry spiritually, we all sort of do the same thing. One, we have a we have a tendency to be hesitant to go into the presence of God, don't you? And when you've been beaten up by your own sin and you've you've sort of done it time and time again and you find yourself praying in the shower over the same thing over and over again and you find yourself doing it almost immediately after asking forgiveness for it, don't you find yourself being a little hesitant to go to a holy God again for forgiveness? These people did. I know that I've experienced that. And our weariness really puts us in that kind of frame of mind. We kind of hesitate to go to God. You hesitate to really come to chapel and put away your books and really ask God to address your soul. Because, you know, I'm so weary anyway, I just don't want to go through it. I don't even want to be in the presence of God. You shy away from your Bible. You shy away from Christians. You shy away from anything that would remind you of God's presence. The other thing that weariness does, it not just makes you hesitant to go into the presence of God. Weariness sort of makes you doubt all of God's promises, doesn't it? I mean, it just doesn't seem like God's delivered up to this point. How can I expect Him to deliver into the future? And you just start finding yourself, maybe not being defiant, but really feeling doubt grow in your heart. And you know, the third thing that weariness very commonly does in our lives, makes us hesitant to go into the presence of God, makes us doubt the promises of God, but it also makes us turn our focus upon ourselves when we're weary. You ever notice that? Weary people are really selfish. We're, we're that way. When we're tired spiritually, it's almost like we orchestrate everything in our life to feed me. Everything exists or doesn't exist from the perspective of how it contributes to what I want. And we become very, very selfish people when we're weary. And the author of Hebrews comes to these people who are beaten down and stale and stagnant, who are fighting probably those three tendencies, and he says to them, Number one, do what is right. Draw near to God. And then in the rest of that verse, he gives four, not conditions, but descriptions again of who they are in Christ. He says, draw near to God. Take advantage of what, God, of what Jesus Christ has done in His sacrificial priestly work. Jesus Christ has given you access to the presence of God. You know when the priests used to wear the bells in the in the most holy place? You know, there's a lot of explanations for that. One of them is that I, I think is very possible is that people realize that at any point if he makes a mistake, bam, he's gone. And the bells kind of gave you an idea that he was doing okay. He hadn't messed up. He hadn't become impure in any way in his heart or in his body. And so the bells kind of kept everybody, you know, outside since nobody else could go in but the but the high priest once a year. I mean, the bells were kind of there to let everybody know that everything's okay. I mean, being in the presence of God in an impure, sinful condition meant instant death. The psalmist told us very clearly to be in the presence of God for the unrighteous is death and judgment. And the author is telling us, but you know what? In Jesus Christ, no matter what it is that you do, 
no matter what the sin is that you have gotten entangled in, no matter how many times you've been defeated, there is nothing that is found in God that resists you coming into His presence. What an unbelievable thought. God is calling us into His presence no matter how dirty we see ourselves to be because He sees us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in Christ we are acceptable to a, a holy God. Draw near to God, He said. The presence of God was one of the greatest desires of the Jewish people. In His presence was joy, we sing, and the psalmist says. In His presence is life. In His presence is security. In His presence is a true understanding of happiness. What a great thing to experience, the presence of God. Don't allow your sin to refuse you to enjoy the work of Christ in that man. The second thing he goes on to say, draw near to God. Go into His presence. Take advantage of the, Christ, of the work that Christ has effected for us. And then he says, hold fast to the profession of faith. In chapter 3, verse 14, he said, the characteristic of a true believer can be defined by where does the person put their hope? Do they put it in money, in power, in fame, in pleasure, in knowledge, in circumstances, in a house, in a car, in fences and walls, in an income, in a marriage? Or ultimately, is their hope resting upon Jesus Christ? And to a weary people, this author says, hold fast to your profession, which is the true and only source of spiritual hope. The third thing he goes on to say, not just draw near to God, and not just to hold fast to your profession, but it's very interesting, the last thing he says, he again takes a very unusual New Testament word. And the word has the sort of the picture, I know this didn't exist in this day, but in our day, it makes, this is a good analogy, one of those little Christmas globes, you know, that has the snow in it, and then you shake it up. Well, when you shake it up, the snow doesn't all of a sudden get injected into the globe. It was always there, but you kind of got to agitate it to see it so that it has its effect. That's the word that's used here. He says, consider others and agitate them to love and good works. He's not saying put something in their heart through your ministry to them that is not there, Christ put it there and He just made a, a strong case for that point. But He says, you know, sometimes it takes someone like me and you to come into the life of another believer to agitate what is already there in their heart. And He says, you know, if we're not going to be spiritually weary people, we're going to have to get out of ourselves. We're going to have to have a commitment that's bigger than us and we're going to have to commit ourselves to engaging ourselves in the lives of those around us and to agitate in them holiness. And to do that, he says, you're going to have to spend time with them. It's a life-on-life -life process. I mean, a, a distinctive a relationship here at the college is not just something that's cute and marketable. It's biblical. God changes people in groups. And He does it through you as you agitate love and good works in others. And if you're going to agitate people, I mean, you know this, you're going to have to spend time with them if you're going to agitate them in a bad way or in a good way. And he says, spend time with people. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And rather than doing that, encourage them. You know what that word really means? It means call them 
to a standard. What a beautiful idea. He's saying, go up to the people around you and agitate them to love and good works. Draw out of them. Be a, be a dynamic that really draws out of a Christian what Christ wants them to be. Have that kind of influence on them. Don't be the kind of person that when you touch the life of another person in your world that you, you kind of put a damper on their spirituality and their, their, their desire for holy things. Be the kind of person that draws that out of them. And the way you can do that is by spending time with them, number one. Number two, by encouraging them. In other words, go alongside them, is the word here, and call them to a standard. Call them to holiness. What a great idea. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful ministry that Jesus Christ has affected as a priest and sacrifice and yet calls you and I to be a part of. Unbelievable. And then he ends by saying, look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling yourselves together. You're going to have to do it through life on life. As the habit of some, but encouraging, calling each other to a standard. And the last thing that he says, and you know what, gang? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We're all going to stand before a holy God and he's going to ask us personally how we responded to what I just said. Judgment's coming. And God's going to examine your heart. He's going to examine the heart of your friend. And you have the opportunity to make that examination different than what it otherwise might be because of your ministry in your life. And they have an opportunity to change that examination because of their ministry in you. Remarkable thoughts. The distinctives of the Master's College. A dependence upon God. A life change that is of, of the heart and not the external. A call to be involved in, in ministry and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And a call to personal relationships, to confrontation and restoration. That's exactly what the, what the author of Hebrews says is the, weir, is the antidote to spiritual lethargy. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank You for who You are. And, and Lord, we, just, we are challenged by Your words from the book of Hebrews as you, as you show us, again, just how endless is Your love and, and how boundless is Your grace. Lord, help us as a college family to be committed to You and at the same time not just to love You with all of our hearts, soul, and mind, but to, but to love those around us to be agents of your spirit. Let's stand together, Steve, and we're going to finish with the, with the song this morning.